Heavenly Father, you are the thrice holy God. And it is your expectation of your people who have been called and saved by your grace and indwelt by your Holy Spirit to live holy lives. You've given us commands from your sacred word. And with the new hearts that we have in Christ, you've given us the desire to exercise these commands. As we look at this command this morning, Father, to love our enemies, I pray that you would give us kind and compassionate hearts, that we would see that when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, you brought your love to us in Christ, that you loved us even when we were enemies of you. You loved us, you have forgiven us, and you've made us sons and daughters. I pray, Lord, we'd have that same love for those in our lives that are difficult, for those that try to bring us harm, for those people in our lives, Father, that we say we love with our lips, but we do not love them in our hearts. We ask this morning by your Spirit you would make a radical change in that way, that we would love as Christ loves us, really love, practically love. We ask that you would do that not only for our well-being and those in our lives that either do or do not know Christ, but we ask it for your glory, Father, that in declaring ourselves to be sons and daughters, that we would live as such and we would love as such. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here. I pray for all those who are still sick and unable to be here, that you would bless us this morning with your presence. We want to worship you, Father. We know that you despise religion and so do we. And so this morning I pray that we would have a right encounter with you. That we would hear you speak to us. That you would change us from the inside out. And that we would become more and more as Christ is. We ask that you would do this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Pray for my voice. It's still not fully recovered, but uh, hopefully, God has always been gracious over the years. Even when I'm sick, He enables me to get through about 45 minutes of preaching, and sometimes I can't talk much after that. Um, So hopefully, He'll be gracious with me this morning. As Christians, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, there are several commands the Bible gives us. And as Christians, God expects His children, this may sound radical today, but God expects His children to be obedient to His commands. He doesn't just give the commands and expect us to disobey them. And that means, husbands, we are commanded to love our wives, and wives, we are, you, hopefully you are uh, going to be serious about honoring your husbands. Uh, children are commanded, as you know, to obey their parents, and parents, you are commanded not to exacerbate your children. All Christians are commanded to love one another and be vibrant members of local churches just like this. Every Christian is commanded to use his or her gifts and talents To grow the body, we are to share the gospel, we are to make disciples. Most of these are commands you know. All expected to be exercised with new hearts in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there is one command, my beloved, and if you've known Christ for some time, there is one command that stands out to be, I believe, one of the more difficult commands in all of sacred scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching to this Christian way of life, how we are to live as born-again believers. And he says this, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and following, listen. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, God's children, those truly born again and indwelt by the Spirit, real sons and real daughters of God the Father, will not hate their enemies. You will not hate your enemies. Instead, you will pray for your enemies. You will strive to do good to your enemies. You will actively pursue their well-being instead of what your heart desires to do, which is usually exercise justice or vengeance. Now, before you render this the impossible imperative, before you say, I'm born again, I know Christ, and I still hate Before you do that, I want to show you, in the life of the Apostle Paul, a man who truly loved his enemies. A sinful man who at one time was so filled with hate, as you know, he actually exercised judgment and execution of men and women in God's church, the bride of Christ. And yet God transformed him by the grace of the gospel. He was born again to love his enemies, as you heard Kirk just read, in some of the most extreme circumstances. Real gospel 
love. And so I'd like us to see how Paul, one, how he loved his Jewish brothers who wanted him dead. Number two, how he loved the Romans who wanted to, to uh, inflict serious pain on him. And then I, I think most importantly, I want to show you the source of that love. Because that same love you have, if you know Christ, that you can tap into even this day and begin to, lo- begin to love your enemies as Christ loves you. And that really is what I would love for us to leave this place today with a, a right love, a right gospel love for those in our life that are very, very difficult. Now, I imagine right now, even in this introduction, a few people have come to mind. You said, oh, yes, I know who I need to love more. Keep those people on your mind right now as we work through this text. Three things I want to show you from the text. God's call for us to love the vengeful enemy. Number two, God's call for us to love the confused enemy. And then number three, God's call for us to love the crucified Christ. Love the vengeful enemy, love the confused enemy, and love the crucified Christ. The theme of the sermon is this. It's very basic. Because God loves you, listen, you can love your enemies. Because God loves you in Christ, you actually can. You have the ability to love those who don't love you all that much. Point number one, love the vengeful enemy. So Paul's returned to Jerusalem. He's completed his third missionary journey. He gets there, he meets the brothers, he meets James, he's well-received. But within a couple of weeks, the Jews from Turkey, modern-day Turkey, they, they stir up some trouble. And they say, oh, this Paul, he's a troublemaker. They said he's anti-law, he's anti-Moses, he's anti-temple, and we need to do something about it. And so they literally go into the temple when Paul is in there offering a sacrifice. They drag him out of the temple, and they beat him so badly that Lysias, who was the, the Roman tribune who was charged with keeping peace, Romans keeping peace in Jerusalem, he comes to Paul's rescue, he puts Paul in chains, and he brings him up these stairs, and he's about to bring him into the barracks of uh, the Basilica Antonia. But before they're able to go in, Paul says, can I speak to to the crowd? Can I talk to them? And so uh, Lysias grants him permission to give a sermon. He gives it in Aramaic, so Lysias has no idea what he's talking about. And Paul, he recounts his conversion experience how he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him as a great light. And he tells them that he was once a a fierce persecutor of the church. He was a fierce opponent of those who were claiming Christ. And then he talks about how Christ appeared to him and his heart changed and he became a follower of this Jesus of Nazareth. And so he talks about his conversion experience and then after communicating that how he was his old life hating Christ, his new life in Christ, he tells them how three years later he actually had a vision of the risen Lord again, not as a bright light, this time as master and king, inside the temple itself. Look at verse 17. So this is three years post Paul's conversion, three years after his road to Damascus vision. Verse 17, <clears throat> Paul says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. Now I want you to note, where is Paul three years post conversion? He's in the temple. He's in the temple as a Jew, Christian Jew, praying to God. So their their accusations that Paul was anti-temple don't match what Paul did three years after his conversion in Jerusalem. He's praying. Their accusations were false. While in the temple, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to him. Paul said in verse 18, I fell into a trance. So he has a vision. and He says, I saw him. I saw Christ. But this time, not as a brilliant light that blinded Paul, he saw him as the exalted king, his master and king, who was going to give him very specific instructions on what he was to do next. Look at verse 18. Jesus is going to tell him, you got to leave Jerusalem. you got to get out. Verse 18, latter part, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, if you remember from Acts chapter 9, we know that, that there was a plot in Jerusalem at that time trying to kill Paul, and so it came to Paul's attention, and they said, you got to get out of here. They're going to try to kill you. But here we get some additional information. Jesus is saying, not only do you have to leave because they're going to kill you, you have to leave because they're not going to believe you. They're not going to believe the gospel. Now, Paul was a messenger of the gospel. It made no sense for him to stay in a place that God said, they're not going to hear you. They're not going to repent. They're not going to believe. Therefore, you have to go. Now, I want you to notice, this is what's so extraordinary about this, and I I think the reason that Luke gives us so many details is Paul's reluctant. He's reluctant to leave a people at that time that wanted him dead just as they want him dead here. Look at verse 19. And I said, so Paul is now responding to Jesus, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. Verse 20, and when the blood of Stephen 
Your witness was being shed. I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So Paul says, listen, they know that I ravaged the synagogues. I went and I grabbed Christians and I I brought them to be persecuted. And even Stephen, the great Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he goes, I was standing there. I was holding the coats of those who stoned him and I approved of it. And so Paul is reasoning with Jesus saying, once they see how zealous I was against this group, and how you've changed me, Lord, this is Paul talking, and how you've changed me, they too will see that they can be changed. And so, so Paul is reasoning, arguing with, in a loving way, this vision of Jesus in the temple. Well, Jesus will have none of it. He, he loves Paul's heart. Paul wants to stay and love his enemies, even though they're trying to kill him then. And, uh, and Jesus says, I- I'm going to send you anyway. I'm going to send you out. We get, we get a really clear picture, though, I think, of Paul's true love for his enemies. Something he had written prior to this event in Romans chapter 9, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, speaking of his Jewish brothers. For I could wish, Paul says, I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is how much Paul loved the Jews, how much he loved those who were trying to kill him. He said, listen, I'd be separated from Christ if they could be saved. Incredible transformation of this man's heart. Jesus responded, though, in verse 21 to Paul's request. Jesus said to me, verse 21, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The I there in verse 21 is emphatic in the Greek, and it's essentially Jesus saying, Listen, this is what you're going to do. You want to stay? That's good. Your heart is good, Paul, but you're going to go because I'm going to make you my apostle to not the Jews, but to the Gentiles. I'm going to send you out. Now, it's interesting here that Dr. Luke records their response to it. Look at verse 22. So he's now speaking. He's finishing his dialogue now, his sermon in Aramaic, as he's standing up on these steps. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened. So they listened to a lot that they did not like. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. In other words, Paul had crossed a line. Paul had said, listen, the living God, Yahweh, your God, is sending me to the Gentiles, and I am no longer going to be preaching the gospel to you. And to this, this was unfathomable to the Jew. To to the Jew, the Gentiles were unclean. They were people deserving of judgment, not salvation. Even though, from their own scriptures, they know that the promise of God was what? That the seed of Abraham would bless the nations. That from Abraham, a Savior, Christ, would come. And many people, Jew and Gentile, would be saved. So even though their scriptures testified to this, they hated what God said through Paul. And they knew, I think, in part, if not in whole, that this was a response to their rejection. Because they did not receive Paul. They did not receive the gospel. God is sending the gospel out through Paul to the nations. And so they understood that. They didn't like the gospel. They didn't like free grace. They wanted the law. They wanted temple sacrifices. They wanted to be saviors of their own souls, doing their own good works to get into heaven. So they didn't like the gospel. But they also hated this fact that that Paul was saying God's sending him to the Gentiles. In fact, we know from Romans chapter 11, verse 15, that this is exactly what God was doing that there the Jews' rejection of the gospel meant, Romans eleven fifteen the reconciliation of the world, that the gospel would go out to Gentiles, many like you and me hearing and believing. And so they're done with Paul. And they, Paul's not going to speak anymore to this crowd. Look at verse 23. <clears throat> What's their response? They were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Now, some commentators said that was a, a sign of mourning and grief, and that, that may have been, but I don't think so. They were taking off their outer garments as they would take off their garments in order to stone someone. And I believe they were actually throwing dust at Paul in that direction, thinking, if we had rocks, Paul, oh, if we could bring you back down here again, get rid of Elysius, get rid of the centurions, we'll put you to death. Right now, we will stone you to death. In other words, Luke gives us a picture of their hearts. They want to kill Paul. Now, these are Jews arguing that Paul was anti-law, anti-Moses, anti-temple. And what, what do they want to do? Their hearts tell us. Paul had yet to be charged. He had yet to be accused. He certainly had yet to be tried. And yet, what do they want? They want to exercise capital punishment. They want to kill him in direct violation of the laws of Moses. They were accusing Paul 
of violating. In other words, this is a scene of radical hypocrisy by those who were enemies of the Apostle Paul. And I think, I do, I think Dr. Luke wants to paint the contrast here. Those Jews who were just like Paul years prior. Here Paul is, his heart made new in Christ, now loving his enemies, and those Jews who want Paul dead still enslaved to their sin. So Paul, the once fire-breathing, as the scriptures say, the fire-breathing Jewish persecutor of the church, had been so transformed by the gospel that not only was he striving to grow the church and bless the church, he was loving his enemies who wanted him dead. That's how different Paul was here. Even though they hated him and wanted to stone him, he refused to hate in return. He did not give insults. He did not condemn them as his enemies. Instead, he reveals for us this first mini picture I want you to get. We get a picture of Paul's heart, which had truly been transformed by the gospel. He truly, truly loves his enemies. Not something he just says, and not something as we often do. We say, yes, I love my enemies, but not really, not in my heart, and not how I behave. So before we go to the next point, I, I want to stop for just a second, and I want you to ask yourselves, what is the disposition of your heart generally toward those that you don't like much, to those who bring suffering and pain into your life? What's the general disposition? Is it, is it one of, of kindness and mercy and prayer, or is it one of vengeance or maybe justice? In our culture, we don't do a lot of that, at least not in the church. We just get quiet. You never notice that? That's, I think, one of the number one weapons we use in the church. You're going to treat me like that? Well, I'm just not going to talk to you. I'll act as though you don't exist. You're here. I see you, but I will not talk to you. What is the disposition of your heart? Is it like Paul's here, loving enemies who, here, they wanted Paul dead, literally want him physically dead? I hope there's no one in your life. I hope there's no enemy like that in your life. But we definitely have enemies in our lives that want our ill will, right? And so what is your heart? So first thing, we get a picture of Paul. But one of the questions I had was, was, was this just toward the Jews? I mean, he's a Jew. We, we get clearly from Romans chapter 9 that he desires them to, to be saved. Was he being prejudiced here? Or did he have a true love for all of his enemies? Point number two, Love the confused enemy. Look at verse 23. So this is the crowd now as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. Verse 24. The tribune ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So Paul goes from the fire directly into the frying pan. I mean, this is not good. He's rescued from being stoned to death, and now he's going to be flogged. And that's a Roman flogging. Not because he had committed any crime, and Paul had still yet to be accused of anything, and he certainly had not been tried. Lysias here, Lysias, he doesn't know what's going on. He knows he's not the Egyptian assassin that he thought he was, and why he arrested him in the first place. Paul's entire speech was in Aramaic, so Lysias didn't understand a word he was saying. So he still still believes that Paul's up to no good, that there's some criminal activity, and so he's going to use the tactic of Roman flogging to get some answers out of the Apostle Paul. Now, this is really important to note. This is not the the beating with rods that Paul and Silas experienced in Philippi back in Acts chapter 16. If you remember that, Paul, it was only after he was beaten by rods that he declared himself, said, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And they said, you got to get out of here because that was bad for them. This was the brutal Roman scourging that our Lord and Savior experienced on the day that he was crucified. Um, Lysias departs the scene. He leaves the centurions to do their business of scourging Paul. And that scourging is a whipping. And the device that was used was a a Roman flagrum. And the flagrum, if you've ever seen a picture of it, it was a a perfect weapon for inflicting punishment. It had a short, stout handle and usually three or more leather straps about 24 inches long. And on each strap, it had a piece of rock or shard or something sharp that when it was cast upon the back, it would dig into the flesh and it would create these deep furrows, these deep lines of flesh being torn to pieces. Usually it was 39 times because 40, it was considered to kill a man. It was usually exercised by two centurions, one on either side, and the victim was 
put down on their knees. They were actually, they were stripped bare of their back and they were placed over a pillar or a stone and then their hands, their feet were in shackles because you wouldn't stay there on your own volition. And then the beating would commence. It was such a bloody and violent ordeal. It was used for punishment, but it was so brutal that oftentimes someone would not make it through. They would die in the midst of the flogging. Look at verse 25. So they stretched him out for the whip. So Paul is in position to be flogged. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now we get a full stop here in the story. I mean, this is earth-shattering news. So he's strapped in, and now he tells him at this point in time, oh, by the way, what you're going to do is a grievous violation against Roman law because I am a Roman citizen. My beloved, and putting a Roman citizen in chains without due process of law was a grievous act. To flog a man or flog a woman who was a Roman citizen was tantamount to treason. In fact, Cicero, the great Roman philosopher and statement, this is what he said, listen. He said, to chain a Roman citizen was a crime. Paul had already been chained illegally. To scourge him was a scandal. And to slay him, patricide, the equivalent of killing one's own father. And so the magnitude of this, Paul had yet to be tried, he had yet to be charged. He hadn't even been asked. No one asked him, are you a Roman citizen? And yet they're gonna, they're gonna exercise a flogging. Look at verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune, to Lysias, and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the centurion knows we're gonna get in really big trouble if we go through with this flogging process. And had they proceeded, Lysias, the centurions, and even those who started the riot would have been held accountable severely by Rome. No charges, no trial, no questioning, not even, oh, by the way, are you a Roman citizen? Which was part and parcel with due process of law. Are you a Roman citizen? Because if you are, you're treated differently. So Lysias, he hears the centurion, he goes back to where Paul was, verse 27, he says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul just says, yes. It's definitive. No explanation. Yes, I am, meaning, Lysias, you are in big, big trouble, even though the flogging had not taken place. So Lysias had already made the mistake thinking Paul was the Egyptian terrorist, but he wasn't. But now he was about to make a mistake that would have certainly cost him his job, possibly his freedom, and maybe in the most extreme circumstance, it could have cost him his life. Okay? So Lysias is having a bad day. He's having a really bad Roman soldier day. Verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So now the situation gets even worse. You became a Roman citizen because you were born to parents who were Roman citizens. That was one way. Another way was if you served, let's say you served the state or you served in the military, you could be granted citizenship for that. Um, Slaves who were released by their masters in good standing often could become citizens as well. But the lowest form of citizenry in the Roman Empire, the, the cheapest way was to buy it. If you were able to get enough money and to buy your citizenship, you could become a Roman citizen, but it was considered by many to, and some to be illegitimate and certainly a lower form of citizenship. And so Lysias is saying, I bought mine. And Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. My parents were Roman citizens. In other words, Lysias' situation is going from bad to worse by the minute because he was about to punish a man who was born a Roman citizen. Verse 29, everybody gets real wise here. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So it was exit Stage left for the centurions, they're out of there. Lysias didn't tell them they could leave, but there's no way they're going to stick around and have their hands contaminated by this illegal activity. And then Dr. Luke tells us that Lysias, for the first time, he is legitimately afraid. Right? He had already broken the law. He put Paul, a Roman citizen, in shackles without due process of law, and he was on the verge of having him flogged. So Lysias realizes that had this continued, and he may still be in, in jeopardy of being reprimanded by Rome. Now, 
The question is, why did Paul say anything? Why did Paul declare his Roman citizenship at this time? Um, certainly, we don't want to diminish the fact that he didn't want to be flogged. I mean, it's, it's a, it was a horrible ordeal, and he knew that due process was being violated. And so, in one way, he was, he was saying, listen, I don't, I don't want to go through this. I don't have to go through this. So he steps up and he says, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. What you're about to do will bring great harm upon you. But I do believe, now listen closely, and several of the commentators argued also, that Paul was loving his enemies here too. Just as he loved the Jews who wanted him dead by proclaiming the gospel, he's loving his Roman centurions. He's roaming the tribune, Lysias, by letting them know, by the way, before you continue, I'm a Roman citizen, you ought not do this. It can get really, really bad for you. Paul here was loving his enemies too. You see, had Paul been scourged for the sake of Christ? Well, Paul knows. He knew what the scripture said. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus said, for your reward is great in heaven. So Paul knew if I'm scourged for the name of Christ, that's a reward in heaven for me. Paul also knew that had they gone through with it, he'd had a chip in his pocket, wouldn't he? As he moved forward and made his way to Rome and possibly to Spain, he could have said, oh yeah, remember, this is how I was treated. And he'd had credit against the Roman Empire. But Paul also knew, and this was his heart, that had Lysias and the centurions and those who instigated the riot, had this gone through, Rome would have investigated and the wrath of Rome would have been exercised on all those involved, including those who started the riot. In other words, everybody would have been punished severely. And so Paul declares his Roman citizenship here, unlike he did in Philippi when he was beaten by rods. He declares it here because Paul believed it was, listen, the most loving thing to do for his enemies. The most loving thing Paul could do in this situation for those who are about to beat him was to get them off the hook, to set them free from the consequences of their sins. So he had preached the gospel to the Jews. He sets his Roman captives free by identifying himself as a Roman citizen. And what we see here, again, the culmination of this, is Paul's heart. Paul really was a son of the living God. Paul really had been born again by the Holy Spirit. Paul really did love his enemies. It wasn't something he just taught, and it wasn't something he said to himself. He actually, practically loved his enemies. Now, I started this sermon by arguing that this is one of the most difficult commands in the New Testament. And I, I truly think it is. I truly, personally think it is. We're, we're not commanded to tolerate our enemies. We're not commanded to be nice to our enemies, but hate them in our hearts. We're commanded to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This is real love, internal love, in your heart of hearts saying, I really do love that person. They hate me. They bring harm against me. They brought harm against my wife and my children in the church, but I truly, truly love them. And that's what this type of command is teaching. Real, sacrificial, blessing the other person kind of love. Now, I don't know about you, my beloved, but that's, uh, that's hard. That's really, really hard. My natural response, my sin response to those who come at me is to go back at them. Fighting, vengeance, justice, no mercy, no kindness, no humility, but eye for an eye. That's my natural response. I guess the operative question before I close, is how do we do this? I mean, how? It's one thing to say, here's the command, love your enemy, and show us Paul. Now, that just makes me feel worse because Paul's doing it so well. I mean, they're going to stone Paul and flog Paul. I've never had that happen to me, and yet he's loving them, and yet I get a snide remark or a nasty little email or no one texts me back, and therefore I hate my enemy. How pathetic are we? How do we do it? How do we respond not with retribution but kindness? How do we respond not with justice, but with mercy? How do we know that we're really sons and daughters of the living God? Because sons and daughters of God the Father will love their enemies as Christ loves us. Don't you want to know? You must want to know. You don't want me to end now, right? Let me give you, can I give you one more point? How do we love our enemies? 
Number three, love the crucified Christ. You want to love your enemies? Love the crucified Christ. So every single command in the Bible that God gives, he expects his children to obey. Not by duty, but by choice. Not reluctantly, but joyfully, including this most difficult imperative. God expects us to joyfully love our enemies. So how do we do it, and where do we get the power, and where do we get the heart? Because really, we've got to go inside, right? I mean, we can all fake it. Most of us have faked loving our enemies pretty well. They come into our presence. We don't hit them. We don't turn, our, turn aside from them, right? We fake it well, but inside, we're seething. That's not what we're looking for here. We're looking for a true love on the inside that manifests itself on the outside. First John chapter 4, you heard it read. I'm going to give you a few verses because here's your answer. First John 4, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now listen to this, 1 John 4.11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God's, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And there's your answer, my beloved, to the seemingly impossible imperative to love our enemies. It is, listen, it is the love of God the love of God the Father that he has through you, expressed for you in Christ, that you have, that dwells in you, that enables you to love those that you do not like all that much. It's not your willpower. It's not your old heart. It's the love of God through Christ in you that manifests itself outside of you, surrounding all those that want to bring you harm with the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simply put, God treated the one he loves most, his precious son, like what? He treated him like an enemy. He treated him like an enemy. Why would he do that? So that you, a real enemy of God in your sin and rebellion, so that you could experience his love and become what? A son or daughter, right? So God the Father treats his precious son like an enemy so true enemies like us can receive the love that God has for us in Christ and become and then live as sons and daughters of him. So you could be filled, and if you know Christ, then you know this. You could be filled with a love so powerful and so radical that it will flow out of you like a rushing river, and it will spill over the banks, and it will touch everyone in your life, including your enemies. A true gospel love will not love those who love us. A true gospel love will love those who do not like us and are not kind to us and do not want what is best for us. A true gospel love will flow out of you from Christ through the Son, out of your new heart into the lives of those around you. You see, my beloved, by sending, by God the Father sending the Son in the world not to condemn the world, but what? To save, to redeem, to make sons and daughters. And he did that by making Christ the propitiation for our sins. Christ our propitiation. That's a nice, fancy word for atonement. It's substitution. It's what God did in order to redeem sinners like us, enemies like us. He sends Christ to the cross, and on the cross, Christ receives the full wrath of God so that we don't have to. Very similar to the Apostle Paul telling him, I'm a Roman citizen, sparing Lysias and the centurions, the wrath of Rome. Jesus Christ on the cross, by dying for us, by his blood, his flesh, paying for our sins, is able to grant to us what? Not the wrath of God, but the forgiveness of God. Not the judgment of God, but the mercy and love of God that we too then might have the righteousness of Christ and that you might be filled with the love of God and actually live like a son or a daughter of our Father Most High. Jesus Christ, our propitiation, it's the way that God harmonizes his perfect holiness and his need to punish every sin with what? With pardoning sinners like us. How can God do that? How can God remain holy and just and yet pardon sinners by punishing his son, by taking his son whom he loves and making him an enemy so that he can take enemies like us and love us in Christ? Amen? Oh, that's, that's good news, my beloved. That is the gospel message. Christ ascending the cross to receive what we rightly deserved so we could get what he deserved, and that is eternal life. That is the love of the Father. Now, this fascinating <clears throat> Jesus Christ, like Paul, went to Jerusalem. He was taken by the Jews and he was handed over to the Gentiles. He was handed over not to, to a man named Lysias, but a man named Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate had the sense to ask Christ about his citizenship. Lysias forgot to ask and got himself in big trouble. Not 
Pontius Pilate, John chapter 18, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Who are you, Jesus? Listen to what Jesus said. He answered, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And in that momentous dialogue, Jesus reveals something far more profound than Roman citizenship. He says, oh, by the way, he reveals to Pilate, I am a king, and I'm not a king of this world. I'm a king of the eternal kingdom. The kingdom of my father is what he tells Pilate. But unlike Lysias with Paul, Pilate refused to believe Jesus. He should have, but he did not. Instead, he hands our Lord over to be flogged. And he had the back of our Lord and Savior stripped. And he, like Paul, had been moments before he was set free. He had been chained. And those deep furrows, those 39 lashes with that horrible flagrant were unleashed on Christ's back. And that wasn't the worst of it. You know that then he was sent to the cross. And upon the cross, he received the full wrath, not only as a criminal of Rome, but the full wrath of God in his body, receiving the punishment, the equivalency of eternity in hell that we rightly deserve. And what happened on the cross for us and what Christ communicates on the cross is truly extraordinary. If you want to know how to love your enemies, it's look, looking to Christ and what he did on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus at any time could have called down a legion of angels and, and got him off the cross and destroyed all the enemies in front of him. In fact, all Jesus had to do was speak, and he could have destroyed all those in front of him. But he doesn't do that. He ascends the cross. He stays on the cross, and then what does he pray to God the Father? Smite them, judge them, destroy them. You know what he says. He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He asks God to forgive them instead of punish them and grant them repentance through faith in him. It's the most extraordinary prayer. I think one of the most profound prayers in all the New Testament that Christ prays for enemies on the cross, enemies like us. And you know what God the Father did? He said yes. To all who repent and believe, to all who have put their faith in this crucified, risen Savior, God the Father says, yes, I will forgive them. You paid their punishment. They're no longer enemies. Now they're coming in. Now they're sons. Now they're daughters. Now they are dearly loved. In other words, God the Father, instead of showing judgment that we rightly deserve through Christ, grants us mercy. God the Father loves his enemies. And this is the source, my beloved. This is the power that you have in your life. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you also know the love of God the Father. And that love comes directly through him to you and has filled your heart. It cannot be contained, that love. Oh, that love is so powerful, a gospel love dwelling in you through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it cannot be contained. John was right. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God abides. God, the person, the Holy Spirit abides in us and his love is what? It's perfected in us. How do you know your love is being perfected in Christ? I would say a great test is how well you love your enemies. How well do you love your enemies? If you're loving your enemies well, then God's love is truly being perfected in you. If you only love those who love you, if you're only kind to those who are kind to you, then maybe not so much this perfection of the love of God in your heart. So what does it look like? Very briefly. For Paul, he preached the gospel to the Jews who wanted him dead, and he declared his Roman citizenship to get Lysias and the centurions off the hook. That in, that, in this immediate situation, Paul very practically loved the Jews and Gentiles by doing something that what? That was good for them. It was a blessing to them. The Jews didn't respond like that. Lysias does. He takes him out. We'll see next week. He says, oh, we, I, I've got to stop this. Lysias responds correctly. But what about you, my beloved? How well do you love and how do we love? I'm going to give you two because I know I'm a little I'm going to give you two, just two. I want you to remember this, though, all right, to help you love your enemies well because we want to do that well. First, it means putting truth over your feelings. One of the ways that we love our enemies is by putting truth God's truth over how we feel. Now, I don't need to tell you that when someone hurts you, when someone comes against you, when someone does something that um, is, is bad for you, um, the feeling that comes out of us is usually not compassion and mercy and kindness. It's usually anger, frustration, justice, vengeance. 
And oftentimes, those feelings that we have in those moments, they run contrary to the truth. We want justice or we want vengeance rather than what God calls us to do in loving our enemies. And so when we're hurt, what? We want to hurt back. That's natural. You ever seen two and three-year-olds when they're playing and one hurts the other one? Well, the other one comes and all right, I'm going to get you now. Why? Because they deserve it. And, and they're right. There's a just response there, but not for the Christian, not for the person who has the love of God dwelling in them. So if your neighbor consistently plays their radio very loudly at 2 a.m. and you've talked to them and they continue to do it, it is not loving to go and badmouth them to the other neighbors. That's not a Christian response, right? That's a vengeful response. If your colleague at work takes credit for work that you did and actually is blessed by that, it's not loving to then go around to all your colleagues and slander that person's name because they hurt you. If a brother or sister in Christ here in our church upsets you, two, three, four times, disappoints you, lets you down. It's not right then to ignore them for the remainder of your time here in this particular family. My beloved, it is so easy, is it not, to fall back on our natural feelings. It's a really easy thing to do, just to default to the old heart and the old self and not love but actually hate those who hate us. God's word tells us, here's the truth of God's word, God's word Ephesians 4.26, to be angry and not to sin. In other words, listen, this teaching of being hurt does not mean never getting angry. It doesn't mean saying, oh, I'm not really hurt, I'm not really upset. It means experiencing that anger but not sinning in the midst of it. It means taking that anger, taking it to Christ in prayer, and having him, by his word, direct your response. In other words, we want the truth of God's word to weigh in on our feelings. We want the truth of God's word to overcome our feelings. So what do you need to remind yourself of? Well, the person that you're angry with, they're an image bearer of God, made by God. I'll say this in love, you have no right to hate an image bearer. I don't care what they've done to you, you have no right. They're made by God, they will be judged by God. Another truth that you might want to bring to mind is that the Bible says very clearly, and we prayed about it this morning, that God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not yours. You can't claim it. It doesn't belong to you. Vengeance is not yours. God will repay, right, which should cause you to pray for that person because there's no greater vengeance than that of the living God. We are to remind ourselves again and again that we once were what? We were enemies of God, and while enemies, he showed us mercy by sending his son to the cross to die for our sins, Right? So we are humble people. We know where we were. We know where we are now in Christ, and we know what it costs God to get us here. So humble people love their enemies because we know what we rightly deserve as a result of our sins. My beloved, remind yourself that you should want your enemies to know Christ. Right? If, if, if your enemy is a believer, then you want them to be sanctified. You don't want them to stay in that sin. And if your enemy is a non-believer, you want them to see the love of Christ in your life to them that they might know Christ too. Right, that's a much greater goal than vengeance, much higher desire for them than retribution. It's reminding ourselves that we are, listen, if you're in Christ, you're a son of God, you're a daughter of God. That's who you are, and therefore what? We are to live like that. Sons and daughters of the living God do not hate their enemies. Sons and daughters of the living God love their enemies as Christ loves us, amen? All right, so first, put truth above your feelings. Now that's, that's easy to say and hard to do. In the midst of those feelings, when you want to respond poorly, bring the truth of God's word to bear on it. Can I give you one more? One more. It means overcoming evil with good. Now you've already heard this read from Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now the impossible imperative becomes doubly impossible, right? The Jews want Paul dead, so what does Paul do? He shares the gospel because he wants them saved. The Romans want to flog Paul. They want to rip his back to shreds illegally. Paul loves them by saying, I'm a Roman citizen, you ought not do that. You're going to get in trouble too. You, my beloved, your sins against God are deserving of eternal judgment. But God overcame your evil with good by sending his son to die for you. A heart truly captivated by Christ 
will take the initiative to do good to those who do evil to us. You'll take the initiative to overcome the evil that people are perpetuating in your life and do good to them. You want to talk about the gospel being radical? I mean, this is it, right? Not, not responding, not saying, okay, I won't do anything. It's not, it's saying I won't exercise justice. I will actually bless them. I'm going to do stuff to help them, even though they're trying to hurt me. That's a true heart captivated by Christ. One author, he coined it flipping the script, and that really helped me. He said, flip the script, change the narrative, because you know the narrative. You know what your heart wants to do when you're first hurt, when you're first upset. It's, if you're like me, it's respond in an ugly fashion. Send the email, write the note, be mean because they were mean to you. Justify your actions by the pain that you experience. So what do you do to flip the script? <clears throat> well, one thing you can do is you can be the one who seeks reconciliation even if it's not your fault. Hmm? Someone hurts you. Someone breaks a relationship with you. You didn't do anything. Rare, I know, but let's say you didn't do anything. You're truly innocent in that situation. Be the first to go and, and seek reconciliation. Don't say, well, you know what? They, they, they have to come to me. Go to them first. Be the first to grant forgiveness in your heart, in your heart, before any forgiveness has been sought or given. Before anything has ever been said, forgive them in your heart before the Lord, knowing that you have received mercy from God. That's a way to initiate. Being kind and merciful when your enemy expects what? Judgment, retribution. Flip the script. So very practically, I know we talked about a few commands at the beginning. I'll wrap it up with this. Wives, it means when your husbands have been mean to you, don't carry a grudge by withholding your affections from them. Don't do that. Husbands, when your wife has disrespected you, don't disrespect her in return. Children, when your parents have been harsh, don't increase your rebellion. Employees, when your boss has been heavy-handed with you, don't shirk at work and say, well, they've been mean to me, therefore I'll work less. I won't be a good employee. Rather, what? Do the exact opposite. So what's the opposite of that? Well, wives, when your husbands have been mean to you, show them greater affection. Did you hear that? In fact, you can apply that to anybody. When someone's been mean to you, show them greater affection, not less. Husbands, when your wives dishonor you, show them double honor. Show them triple honor. Flipping the script. Gospel love. Children, when your parents have been harsh, be more, more obedient. Employees, when your boss has been difficult, maybe even inappropriately hard on you, redouble your efforts at work, become a better employee. Everything's upside down in the kingdom of God, is it not? Including how we love, how we practically love. You remember what, what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 24 when Saul's out trying to kill David because David was such a faithful servant of the Lord. Paul's jealousy, Saul's jealousy had gotten the best of David, the best of him, and he's trying to kill David. In the wilderness of En Gedi, they enter the, remember the, the, the goat cave, and David and his men go all the way into the back, and, and then Saul, who's pursuing David, trying to kill him, Saul comes in the exact same cave, and he goes to sleep. So David's men said, this is it. God has delivered Saul, your enemy, into your hands. Go kill him. So what does David do? <clears throat> David listens to their counsel. He goes up to Saul, and he cuts off the corner of Saul's garment, Saul's robe. And then what was David's response to that? Let me just read to you. After David had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, David's heart was struck because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. So Saul leaves the cave and then David exits the cave and he cries out to Saul, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And he shows him the garment. And then David said, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge me against you by my hand, but my hand shall not be against you, David said. You're my enemy, but I will not be your enemy. Verse 13 then, he said, as the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. What was Saul's response? Do you remember Saul's response? David overcomes evil with good, not killing Saul, but by blessing him. As soon as David had finished speaking these words, Saul said, 
Is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted his voice, and Saul wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. You have have repaid me good where I have repaid you evil, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. So even Saul recognizes it. Now listen to this. For if a man finds his enemy, he will let him go away safe. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. My beloved, one of the best ways to display the gospel of Jesus Christ is to love your enemies like this. To love a broken world with real, practical gospel love. Just as Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You can show the love of Christ in you by overcoming your evil enemies with good. Real good. F.F. Bruce said like this, I love it. He said, the best way to destroy an enemy is to turn him into a friend. Best way to destroy an enemy is turn that enemy into a friend through the love of Christ. All right, so just because this command is difficult does not give us an excuse not to obey it. If anybody says it's not difficult, they don't understand it. It is hard, but we are still called to obey it. So draw near to Christ. Enjoy the love of God the Father that he has for you in Christ and that love will flow from your heart into the lives of your enemies and you know what will happen? You'll love them too. You will love them as Christ loves you. It's better, my beloved. It's better for you, it's better for our enemies and it brings glory to God, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such an extraordinary story of the Apostle Paul displaying his love for enemies, Jew and Gentile alike. I ask, Lord, that this would not be discouraging to us, but we would see that the the once fire-breathing enemy of your church had been so transformed by the gospel and love of Christ that he was able, very practically, to love those who wanted him physically dead or physically beaten. I dare say, Father, that most of us do not have enemies that are so vengeful in our lives, and yet we do not love as Paul loves. I ask whether you would change that, that you would cause the love that you have for us in Christ to be so overflowing in our lives that we will, in practice and from our hearts, love those who don't love us, that we will love our enemies, and in so doing, reveal that we are sons and daughters of yours. I ask that you would do this, Father, for our blessing for the testimony of the gospel as it goes out to those who do not love us and do not love you. And I pray it for your glory above all else that you might reveal yourself as the good and gracious Father that you are. Do this for Christ's sake, I pray. Amen.